Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel, Marketing Manager for Amos Media and Editor of the CoinWorld Podcast. I wanted to let you know about a special offer we have right now. As a part of CoinWorld's 60th anniversary celebration, we are offering a free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's Digital Edition. If you don't subscribe to CoinWorld or you subscribe to the print edition, now is your chance to check out what the Digital Edition has to offer absolutely free. Our Digital Edition comes straight to your inbox, so you don't even have to leave the house to head to your mailbox. To start your free 30-day trial, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Hurry though, this offer expires May 31st, 2020. Again, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial to start your free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Corner World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have another great show for you today. We discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on transactions, specifically the shift towards cashless transactions and e-commerce. We talk about Jeff's reorganization of his bookshelf, and we are lucky enough to speak with Leanna Spurrier, the creative director at Numismatic Marketing. Absolutely. We have worked hard on this episode to come up with lots of fun things for you and would ask that if you are enjoying these shows, any of the past shows, you have time to listen, please listen to them. But more importantly, subscribe so that we can keep showing up here every week in your podcast app or wherever you are hearing us. Yes, indeed. So this week, you know, it it seems as though we're inundated with news about the COVID-19 pandemic. And obviously, we hope that all of our listeners are staying safe and healthy and uh, and weathering this crisis as well as possible. I know, you know, recording this and, and researching it and everything has given Jeff and I something to do, which is nice. And we hope that you enjoy listening to it. But I was asked this week to write a story for Cornworld's weekly edition. I believe it, it should be online fairly soon. And once it's online, we'll put a link to it in the uh, description so that anyone who's interested in reading you know, an expanded version of this discussion can read my story on it. I was asked to write about the impact of COVID-19 on a larger sort of societal shift towards cashless transactions. It's a topic that keeps coming up in the news even before the pandemic. It's started. a perennial thing. I mean, you you think about I've I've been at CoinWorld 16 years now and every, you know, like 5 years or so, you'll see a study that's released or, you know, some some think tank. Sometimes these are, you know, funded by people that have vested interest in credit card companies. They would love a shift toward more digital payments because of of their processing fees. You'll see that this is sort of of cyclical and and certainly the current situation has brought it back in the news. What did you find in reporting for the story? As many listeners probably could guess, the number of e-commerce transactions and the use of digital payment services, PayPal, Venmo, Apple Pay, the whole range of, of things where you can pay without having to even leave your home in a lot of cases. Um, and also just the use of credit and debit cards online. Apple Pay, um, has, can, can I send you a Golden Delicious? Oh boy, I take a Golden Delicious. I'd take Macintosh. Yeah, is, Gala, is a perennial Gala, favorite of mine. Gala. Ah, yeah. Gala. I can't, oh, really? I can't okay. handle more than one Gala day though. How do you like them apples? <laughs> anyway, um, so 
use of these services and the number of transactions that's being conducted online or through these services has increased massively across the world since the start of this crisis. And that's prompted a lot of observers to speculate on whether this crisis will accelerate the push towards a cashless society, so to speak, or at least towards a widespread acceptance of cashless payment methods. Now, the World Health Organization in early March, so relatively early in in this crisis, or at least relatively early in the crisis arrived on the shores of the United States, uh, the WHO did put out a number of statements advising people to try to avoid using cash whenever possible. Many epidemiologists have suggested that cash and coins don't necessarily spread disease or don't act as particularly effective vectors of disease. But the major concern about in-person transactions is that if you're handing cash over the counter and your hand touches the hand of the cashier or something, and if one of the two of you happens to have it or is as an asymptomatic carrier, is infected but is not yet manifesting symptoms, anything like that, the concern is that it could transmit just by being close to a person, right? Social distancing, we're supposed to be six feet apart according to the social distancing protocols. But, you know, the idea is that it, it brings you into close proximity to another person. The money is not the vector so much as just the uh, proximity. It, it could serve as a vector. I, again... Research generally suggests that the virus can live on coins and bills for up to about a day. People have been washing their mail, right? Yeah. I mean, Lord, Lord knows. Well, they're um, spraying it down or whatever. And I, I also know yeah, exactly. that uh, out, out of or, or they're just leaving it in their mailbox for a full day because that is, at least from the reports that I, I based my research and my article off of, the sense that I got was that if you leave your mail out for about 24 hours, that's enough time that anyone who handled it, any germs, will have generally died. So yeah. I, I know that there was news last week out of the European Union where supposedly the uh, Euro coins have antimicrobial qualities. I haven't done the deep dive and certainly, you know, your look was more in the, the paper money side of things. But, you know, I wonder if there would be a a shift toward the types of alloys and things that are in use there that do, that do offer some options. You know, a lot of countries will put out requests for proposal to produce their coins, right? There's many, many countries don't have their own mints, so they have to have other mints make them. The Canadian mint does a lot of international business. The Royal mint does a lot of international business. Probably the other Three that are really, really active on a global stage, Monet de Paris uh, out of France. You have the Royal Australian Mint to some extent, the Japan Mint. And Pop that, Joy, I imagine, they strike coins for a lot of different places. Well, they they have in the past more, more collector stuff, though, recently. Um, right. The Mint of Finland group is very Saxonia. I don't know what the name is now, but they're very heavily involved in. Uh, and I got to travel to the, the site near Dresden eight years ago where they – you know, they make a lot of the blanks for Euro coinage. So there are fewer than 10 mints that are really, really super active in, in soliciting for production to keep those presses busy. And the microbiology, the antimicrobial factors aren't often sort of a selling point or a something that are that is of interest, at least publicly, to the folks, you know, like the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, say, uh, would contract with and, and in recent years has contracted with the Canadian Mint to strike their coins. That's usually not something they're seeking 
too much, we may see a shift in that. It's not a feature or a selling point that immediately springs to mind, right? Because, you know, we haven't experienced a pandemic on this scale. I mean, you know, there were SARS and MERS, there were, you know, concerning episodes, Zika, Ebola, all the different, you know, sort of small regional outbreaks that were able to be contained relatively well. Since we haven't really confronted a situation like this before, that's just something that isn't front of mind, I imagine, for a lot of central bank or mint officials. But interestingly, central banking policy is actually adopting a strange form of quarantine. So if you're tired of being quarantined, um, turns out cash, paper notes, and, and some coins might be feeling the same way you are. Because a number of central banks, China, South Korea, even the Federal Reserve here in the States, A lot of central banks have implemented a currency quarantining programs where any notes that end up in government vaults or coffers through whatever means are actually quarantined for two weeks where they're basically just put in a room or a vault somewhere and are just left for a couple of weeks to allow any germs that are on them to dissipate. So quarantine is not only affecting people, it's now affecting uh, the cash that we use. And also it's worth examining this, at least in, in a US context, it's worth examining the shift to a cashless society from a legislative angle, because early versions of the first stimulus bill that were introduced actually suggested that stimulus money, the the $1,200 stimulus checks that were created through the first bill could actually be deposited using digital dollars into digital wallets, essentially, and that people could sign up for their digital wallet and then the government would essentially put $1,200 in there and then people could access it and transfer it to bank accounts or transfer into whatever accounts they want and leave it in there, essentially do whatever they want with it which would be a step towards a digital dollar. In fact, a couple of the articles from fairly major news outlets that I looked at, a number of them had talked to uh, Federal Reserve and Treasury officials, one of whom was quoted as saying that the shift to a digital dollar was essentially inevitable. So if the COVID-19 proves to be a sort of accelerant to that process, we may be seeing a digitized currency relatively soon. China is moving rapidly in that direction with Alipay, that has really streamlined uh, digital transactions. And I believe they're, they either have or are fairly close to having their currency digitized. So the change will not probably happen overnight. And I suspect that we won't be seeing a digital dollar for quite some time. But you know, COVID-19 does present an interesting variable in the sort of digital to physical cash equation. I find it curious though. I mean, you you mentioned China and and everybody knows about their social score and you know how the how uh, every, yeah. everything's tracked so so well or or much there, you know, as far as people's movements and and comments and things. I think you can get away with it there or you can you can enact something like that there where there is more openness to that sort of uh, control or or access to the information. Interestingly, the Royal Canadian Mint in the last 10 years, I could not tell you what year, but they started a program to create a digital currency. This was back when Bitcoin was but a wee lad, you know, $500 or something compared to the $20,000, the heights that it reached, you know, at its peak uh, in the last couple of years. But this was early on in, in that phase of people talking about digital currency. And they called theirs, and, I, and I'm not making this up, Mint Chip. Which uh, makes you know makes me makes me want ice cream, but but they that's what they called it mint chip and and they spent a, they spent a lot of money, uh, they did a lot of research, 
And they ultimately decided to sell off their effort to uh, some private entity and, you know, cut their losses. They would have had a better return if they just bought ice cream and resold it, right? <laughs> but, but, but no, you know, it, that, that speaks to the, um, you know, the, the Royal Canadian Mint at least has, has tried to be innovative and, you know, for all the complaints about their place in the market and, you know, when it comes to, say, all the commemorative coins, I mean, it's a different story when you're talking about their bullion because their bullion is widely accepted, right? But yeah. you can at least say they were trying something, they explored it, they ultimately decided it didn't make sense for a national mint to pursue and they walked away from it. So two very different results. Now, if that mint chip experiment were done today, does it look differently? Maybe so. I mean, the whole idea of people that support a Bitcoin and a digital currency is this, uh, the privacy and the, the distance from centralized control. Yeah, And, and, and so if anything that were to be issued under a federal or national heading, I, I think some of the users would necessarily be skeptical. So I think the short response to the question of will COVID-19 make a shift to digital money more rapid or not, who knows? But um, your, your point about the, the Chinese social scoring system and you know, and privacy concerns are fairly valid. And moreover, moves towards a cashless society also tend to hurt those who are unbanked or underbanked. One of the first articles I wrote after starting at CoinWorld in uh, September 2018, I was covering um, a congressional hearing where they actually were talking about a shift towards a cashless society. And they had the directors of the Mint and Bureau of Engraving and Printing uh, they had both of them come in and a rather remarkable statistic was shared. So the statistic is a couple of years out of date, but I imagine just as a, a comment on the scale of people that are unbanked or underbanked. It's a way to, fr- it's a way it's to frame useful. this. Yeah, it's still it, It's still useful. Apparently, somewhere around 45 million Americans are either unbanked or underbanked. And the thing is, with a lot of these electronic payment services, a lot of them rely on traditional banking infrastructure, online banking infrastructure, which only, you know... Medium to large-ish banks tend to have more sophisticated consumer, you know, infrastructure in place. You know, for example, my U.S. bank account, I've got the app, I can just log in and I can link my, my credit card, my debit card to online stores and online payment accounts and things like that. So people who don't have that are often shut out from a lot of these efforts. And I mean, in cash, simply put, older people and often, you know, people who are living in poverty or who, you know, aren't very well off. A lot of those people rely on cash. I mean, cash is a very important part of those people's sort of daily commercial existence. Oh, absolutely. I don't know what your experience was in in the Boston area, whatever, but when I was in college and even today here in Ohio, I encounter people, you know, especially in the service sector, they're working, you know, $10 an hour jobs, $12 an hour jobs. And uh, sometimes uh, folks are leery of banks. Sometimes there's an impulse or a desire to, they get that check and they cash it and then pay the bills and do whatever. Absolutely a part of the economy that exists outside of the standard strictures. Not everybody is raised to go, here, you know, you're five years old. We're going to start putting your birthday money in a bank account and everything you save. And you look at the financial literacy or lack thereof in the country. A lot of folks just haven't been taught by parents, schools. There are some private organizations that have tried to fill the breach and and offer some of those 
learning opportunities, but 45 million, that's 15%. Even two years ago, that doesn't surprise me. And I, I'm surprised it's not higher, frankly, although your 45 million is everybody. And if you then, if you look at, okay, how many of the 327 million Americans, how many of those are working population, then 45 million looks even greater as a percentage. So not surprised at all. I guess the point is that a lot of these sort of digital currency initiatives, they were implemented on a, on a large scale, probably wouldn't benefit a lot of society's most vulnerable people. It shuts them out. I mean, you look at what had to be created for the $1,200 stimulus. Folks who had not electronically filed and linked a bank account would have to contact the IRS and, and give that information. There are third-party providers like an H&R Block and some of these other tax preparers, uh, tax preparation services, what they were doing was taking the money from the IRS and then issuing debit cards with the refund amount on them uh, to the people. And, and it's all those folks who are sort of in that gap that you know would be affected. And even the major financial services, which apparently a large number of Americans don't necessarily take advantage of or, or can't for any number of reasons, or don't want to. So it was a fun topic to write about, though it's a very complicated one and it's it's difficult to find because inf information comes from all kinds of sources. I found myself going down a couple of really interesting sort of Google rabbit holes, right, where I was finding articles, some of which were just essentially editorial conduct sort of masquerading itself as news coverage. A number of, of large news outlets wrote, you know, fairly sober, helpful comments on the issue. And like so many things about this crisis, it's unclear exactly what the long-term implications of it are going to be. Certainly, it's a boon to online payment services and online stores, especially large online retailers like Amazon. Uh, it's clearly a boon for them and potentially for cryptocurrency and digital currency advocates, though those two groups are fairly distinct. It certainly presents a fairly compelling argument for future crises, if, if something like this happens again, you know, having payment services in place so that people can get the funds that they need or can transact or can conduct transactions in a way that minimizes the risk of virus exposure, you know, that certainly is a compelling argument. But there are, as you noted, Jeff, a lot of privacy concerns and a lot of concerns. There are certainly a lot of real and valid concerns about this as well. So if there are significant developments in the story, I or someone else at CoinWorld will um, write something tracking these changes. And it's a topic that I am certain we'll be revisiting at some point in the foreseeable future. So we've taken a look at an ongoing development in numismatics, but now let's dive back into numismatic history. Jeff, what was happening uh, around this point in history. So we're going to stay with CoinWorld coverage, and I'm going to look at the issue dated April 30th from 2018. 2018 is mentioned later during our interview with Leanna Spurrier. What was the big news that week in CoinWorld? Well, the second story on the front page talked about the return of a one David 
J. Ryder to the U.S. Mint. He became the 39th director of the Mint. The name sounds familiar, of course, now, to anyone listening now. If you've been paying attention, you've been witness to how active Mr. Ryder is. He's been you know, the reason we have W Mintmark quarters in circulation that sort of coalesced, or, or they came alongside, I should say, the Great American Coin Hunt in 2019. The initiative continues in 2020 with the Privy Marks. He's been very active in his role, and helping him to maneuver this position uh, is the fact that he was a Mint director in the past. So, you know, he's somebody who brings some experience to the position, and really, you know, I think collectors have witnessed his involvement and his interest in the hobby and serving the hobby. That was the big headline on CoinWorld April 30th, 2018. There were also, as usual, some comments from readers and collectors. What did you find most intriguing? So the first letter that I'd like to mention actually comes to us from a podcast guest, a former podcast guest, uh, Mel Wax. He submitted a letter talking about the American Legion commemorative coinage that was going to be put out the next year, 2019, to honor the centennial of the establishment of the American Legion after World War so I. So let me, let me unwrap that for the listeners. We had Mel Wax on as a guest in 2019. We are looking at an issue from 2018 <laughs> yeah. when True, he was the, writing the, the, about the, a coin coming out in 2019. The timeline here is important. This is a letter from 2018 talking about a coin that's going to be released in 2019, and we had him on the podcast in 2019. So and it is now 2020. <laughs> it's not what it is. So the last few years, there's been a whole a whole um, sequence of events, as you can as you can tell. So uh, he starts the letter off. Uh, quote: Anyone is entitled to give his or her opinion, but before I say anything about the American Legion coin designs, I will give my qualifications. He then explains that he headed up a committee to choose the American Numismatic Association's numismatic. Award for Excellence in Medallic Sculpture for a long time. He details his his credentials, you know, working in and assessing medallic art. He makes his suggestion that the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee and CFA, that the obverse that they approved should eliminate the V for victory. You can go online and look at the designs that were selected for the American Legion commemorative coins. There is a V, which obviously stands for victory. But the Allies won World War I in 1918, not 1919, he points out. And he also questions why they should depict the Eiffel Tower when the American Legion was formed in the YMCA in Paris. He asks rhetorically, shouldn't history matter? And he also points out the V for victory on the American Legion coins is anachronistic and that the V for victory actually was not widely used, at least in reference to the World Wars, until 1941. So Melwax is essentially questioning why the V for victory, which is generally associated with World War II, would appear on a coin associated with World War I, and why the Eiffel Tower was a major motif when, in fact, the American Legion, though it was established in Paris, was established at a different Paris landmark, the YMCA. So it's an interesting uh, series of questions, and for those interested in the history of the American Legion or in that commemorative coin program, it's certainly uh, worth looking into. The other column that really caught my eye is entitled No Sympathy for the Greedy from a man named Dick Fee. And it reads, I began purchasing U.S. mint products in 1961 and continue today to do so. In all these years, I have returned but one set of coins due to a product problem. So 
Am I to feel sorry for the people, let us call them what they are, the greedy Gus gang, in, in parentheses, who swoop in and grab hundreds, perhaps thousands of special sets, and then return them to the mint if sales projections are not met? These greedy Gus people have kept me from obtaining my one or two sets or coins at times in the past. So I say, good for the mint, give the collector a chance. And how about a change in the policy where a greedy Gus has multiple identities and orders the max on each identity? When will the mint put a stop to this? It's an interesting question, and it's one, again, you know, we, we always say when we read these letters, the more things change, the more they stay the same. A lot of people do get frustrated when the mint runs out of a product that they're interested in buying or when resellers buy up a lot of a product that is released in order to resell it at a profit. And the Mint has established protocols to try to prevent people from buying too many of any given product, which is what this letter references. So I I thought those were two uh, fairly interesting perspectives, not only questioning the motifs featured on the American Legion coinage, but talking about the Mint's uh, buying and selling policies. Very cool. So that's the big news from this week, two years ago. Let's look at a broader history, though. Let's take the long view here, the long lens out. This week in coin history, we go to April 29 of 1948. Now, what was happening on April 29th in 1948? I'm glad you didn't ask because that's when (laughs) U.S. Mint Director... Nothing like answering your own questions. That's right. That's when the first female U.S. Mint Director, Nellie Taylor Ross, distributed the first examples, ceremonial examples, of the Franklin Half Dollars at a Franklin Institute dinner. So we all know the Franklin Half uh, here in the U.S., good old Uncle Ben Franklin, good uh, founding father, a bon vivant to Paris, a uh, emissary, an ambassador, just a scientist and Renaissance man par excellence, was placed on the Franklin Half from 1948 to 1963, his time on the half-dollar truncated, of course, because of the horrible, tragic death of John F. Kennedy. So, um, yeah, the first examples of, of those coins were presented at the Franklin Institute at a dinner for the occasion on April 29th of 1948. That's the cool, <clears throat> cool uh, step back in time. Fun to peer, peer back into history. So, Jeff, we have been talking for a couple of episodes now about numismatic literature. We've given a couple of book recommendations, and you are quite a, a numismatic book collector. You have many, many volumes. Your, your library yes. <laughs> certainly, <laughs> your library certainly inspires the envy of, of people like me who are in the process of trying to build one. But my library is nothing like the library of Armand Champa and you know out of Kentucky, I think it was. And there's a whole organization dedicated to folks who love numismatic books, the Numismatic Bibliomania Society, whose podcast is actually hosted by our guest this episode. Uh, Leanna Spurrier. Correct. So, a further inducement for you to continue listening. So as you know, I do have a, a big numismatic library. I've been working on organizing it and, you know, got to do something with my time, right? That, in addition to a podcast listener question, is why we're talking more about books this week. The letter came from Mark Brizzy. Hi, Jeff. I'm a big fan of your podcast and look forward to all the new episodes. I have a question. You have a great knowledge of numismatic literature. I would be eager to read any books you recommend. What do you think about starting a book recommendation segment to the podcast? Maybe in the beginning or ending of the podcast, you guys could tell us a book recommendation. Thanks and all my best. Well, thank you, Mark, for the idea. We had been talking about incorporating that more broadly. So 
the fact that your request came at that time means that it's something we should absolutely do. And here we are. So what I found as I worked on my shelves the last few nights, there's a book that used to be uh, really accessible. I bought an example. I, I went and checked this. I looked it up on my Amazon order history, 2006. And I think it was like $10 then. Apparently I found one in the last two years. There's a big bookstore that I like going to a couple times a year. And I always check their numismatic literature section and come home with a handful or more. I can tell by the price inscription on this book that that's where I got the second example of the book, what is the book that I somehow have found this week that I have two copies of? It is The Big Silver Melt by Henry A. Merton. The subtitle is, if you weren't hooked by the title, the subtitle will get you. The untold story of the illegal melting of U.S. coinage and the coming upsurge in coin values. Now, this is a book that I have used as a reference. I have not read it all the way through. That's most of my numismatic literature is pick it up if I'm working on a story or looking for inspiration for a story, looking for a quote to highlight a certain aspect. In looking deeper at the book, I can't help but think that it sort of blends, it's got a crime noir feel with numismatics because uh, this Henry Merton, the author, this book was published in 1983, I should note. So, you know, we're talking 37 years ago. Merton was involved in a prominent silver melting operation during the late 1960s. It is from his experiences that this book emerged. He takes the reader on a journey with photos of coins being hauled off to be melted at these uh, smelting operations. He goes through and details estimates on coins that were melted compared to the actual mintage and, and what that means as far as a surviving population. Uh, it's really quite interesting. And for a silver bug, for a, a U.S. numismatic historian, uh, are his research and, and his methods, will they stand up to rigorous debate? I, I don't know. It's not that it's self-published. I mean, it's Macmillan Publishing did it. But, you know, I always kind of, when it's a book, that covers numismatics, but it's not a, a name or not a, um, a per, you know, if it's a Q David Bowers book. Okay. Well, I know that Whitman is more than likely in recent years. If it, if we're talking in the recent years, Whitman published it, they have a, a whole group of editors and they, you know, there's a bunch of folks that help build those books. So not that I'm going to blindly accept everything in the book, but I'm going to expect, I have a certain expectation, right? That, that the quality of the research is great. And, and there's a lot there to be learned. I don't know on this guy that I, you know, uh, journalists were always taught, you know, we, we got taught if your mother says she loves you, check it out. You know, always double check, always ask, get confirmation from more than one source, you know, do, do your legwork, do your research. He presents a fascinating story uh, that if true, and I, like I said, I have no reason to question it. It's just, I'm naturally skeptical, uh, but it's really exciting. It, it's really a fun read. I have not checked to see if the ANA library has this. I imagine they will or do. And if you're an ANA member, and you should be because last week was National Coin Week, and you could sign up for a gold membership for free. But if you're an ANA member, you can borrow books out from them under general times, uh, just for paying the shipping and insurance. Now, unfortunately, this book, I saw it on Amazon and, and a few other 
online sources, it's now like a $1,300 book for this little, you know, 150, 127 pages that, that includes the index. So you're probably not going to rush out to buy it. Okay. It is something that, like I say, I think you can get it at the ANA. It's a good starting point. We'll do more of these. Uh, what we're reading next week, Chris will talk about something and Chris will talk mm-hmm. about an accessible book. I just thought it was, it <laughs> was fun to have discovered that, oh, I have two of these and my gosh, now all of a sudden it's a, a crazy expensive book. I don't think that it's $1,300 value, but be on the lookout for it. If you're at a bookstore or a book sale, and you can find it for the one that I apparently got in the last couple of years was $15. Uh, $15 is a fair price. It's a fun read. It's uh, it's worth $15. Um, I wouldn't say it's worth $1,300, but, uh, you know, um, <laughs> check it out and uh, we'll have more of these uh, going forward. Maybe every other week or every who knows, you know, we've gone way long, but uh, we, we want to keep it tight and, um, but that is something. Yeah, I feel we- I, I feel true sympathy for Brian on this one. So, <laughs> um, so um, now that we've heard about your numismatic spring cleaning or your bibliomania spring cleaning, however you want to think about it, Jeff, I think you have a trivia question for me, or at least I think I have an answer to a trivia question that you have asked me. Yes. So uh, last week we had Rick Amos, chairman and CEO of Amos Media, and uh, we talked about the Coin World 60th anniversary. So this week, so the question last week, I should say, was what was the first subscription cost for Coin World? The first, when it just came out, when it was launched, how much did it cost for an annual subscription? 52 True. issues. What, if anything, do you have in mind for the answer, Chris? 52 issues in 1960. I'm I'm going to guess just to, to pick a number because truthfully, I, I do not know. And I'm really actually curious to find out, but I'm going to guess $5. That was was the, was the annual subscription price. That is what I would have said had I not seen the actual price. <laughs> if you didn't know the answer, you would have guessed what I guessed. If I didn't know the answer, I would have said the exact same thing. Uh, right. No, okay. Actually, yeah. it was less than that. It was $3. Really? $3. So right on six cents an steal issue. people in 1960. Yeah. I mean, you know. Six cents an issue, basically, and then two for free. 52 issues for only $3. Now, I don't know at what point that changed. The letter that was sent to all charter readers, the folks who were sent the the sample copy and said, hey, join us on this journey. It was $3 for 52 issues. So yeah, that was that's kind of fun. You know, you think about what would $3 buy then versus what would it buy today? Gosh, $3 back then, gas at 10 cents, that might have bought 30 gallons. Well, today it's only a dollar a gallon, but but no. Yeah, I, you know. I filled up my car, I think, two days ago, and it was a buck eighty nine a gallon, which is not bad. Uh, yeah, except- I mean, the, the, the reason it's so low is is horrible, but it, the, the gas prices are certainly- And uh, here in Ohio, low. it's like a dollar fifteen a gallon. So, uh, and, and, and last year we had higher gas taxes implemented here in Ohio to help you know, pay for the roads and stuff. So two years ago, it, you know, you take those out, take out that extra jump and we'd be right about a buck a gallon. Also look at, okay, you know, $3 in silver, you know, you're talking $40, 13 times face, say uh, retail today, actually because of inflation, printing costs, mailing and all that, the subscription price is a little bit higher than that, but it's almost kept pace. So that was the initial price. Now that we've talked about 
what Coin World used to cost. What are you asking me for answering next week? So the question I have for you is a novice level question. Uh, Good, it increases my odds of getting it. Perhaps, and and this is <laughs> this is uh, related to your home state, not confusion, Massachusetts. Rather, we talked about your beginning in in the numismatic publishing. We talked about Leanna's beginning. So, what three trees appear on the silver colonial coinage of Massachusetts? So there's oh, three different trees. Question. And uh, think about that. You'll answer that next week. In the meantime, you can be thinking about that, but not too hard because we want you to pay attention with the interview with Leanna Spurrier of Numismatic Marketing and all sorts of other cool, fun stuff. Here's the interview. Today, the Coin World podcast is fortunate to be joined by Leanna Spurrier, a fresh face to the numismatic marketing scene, who's done some work for the Newman Numismatic Portal and done a lot of cool video projects, the Numismatic Bibliomania Society, and others. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I can't help but see some similarities between your sort of start in the numismatic industry, at least in terms of uh, having articles published uh, in my own. You started having articles published in Coin Week about late 2018. Is that right? Yeah, November, December of 2018. Yep. That's right around the same time that I started as an associate editor at Coin World. Oh, wow. So how did you first become interested in numismatics and what drove you to start creating numismatic media? Uh, interested in numismatics as a whole was actually quite a while ago. As you know, as a little kid, I instead of getting spendable money from the Tooth Fairy, I got World Coins, and of course, I thought they were cool. So I put them in my little ceramic bank and called myself a coin collector because I had my little stash of foreign coins. And then when I was in middle school, we were cleaning out a relative's house. We found a little glass jar full of wheat pennies, and you know, I was already a coin collector, so I had to. I wanted to know what they were. And they let me keep them. So then I went through them. And by the end of the day, I had them all laid out by date and mint mark on my living room floor and had like learned which ones were the key dates. and was looking out for that SVDB. And it just kind of snowballed from there in terms of collecting. As far as getting into the media side of it, it was kind of an accident at the beginning. In college, my plan was to go into graphic design. The most relevant major at my school also included video production and journalism. So I kind of had a balance between all three in terms of classes. And my senior year, I was taking a documentary video production class for my major. And one of our projects, we had to make a short historical documentary on any topic we chose. And so, of course, I did a coin. <laughs> and at that point, I had won a giveaway over Instagram for a replica of the plain obverse quint pattern from the Nova Constellatio pattern series. And so I decided to do my documentary on that pattern set. And, you know, I made it, I put it up on YouTube and my like biggest hope was hoping that David McCarthy would see it and, you know, enjoy it. And he did a couple days after I posted it and I was like, okay, this, I've, I've accomplished my goal. We're, we're done now. And then it just <laughs> snowballed. Like he sent it, I think he sent it to coin week and then they reached out and invited me to start writing articles. And it somehow, it got around to the Newman numismatic portal. And so they reached out to like have me put together um, a proposal to make some more videos for them. And it just snowballed into this whole thing. So I spent a year freelancing across a whole bunch of different organizations just from that one video. Once things kind of started rolling in, I was like, wait a minute, this is this is necessary. Like there is a demand for media in the numismatic industry. And that was a lot more appealing to me than generic graphic design. 
somewhere in town. So I started focusing more of my efforts on the numismatic side. And here we are. (laughs) After about a year of freelancing, I'm currently the creative director of numismatic marketing. We're fairly new on the scene, but we do a lot of the things that I've been doing over the past year, video production, journalism, um, graphic design, branding, pretty much any kind of media you can come up with, we can do it. Um, And I'm kind of the head of the creative operations there. So it's been an interesting journey. Wow. It is almost eerie the number of beats in your story that line up with the beats of my own numismatic career. Um, (laughs) Almost exactly the same. I started freelancing for Coin World as a senior in college (laughs) and they liked what I was submitting, asked me to submit more. And, you know, I eventually went for a job interview. So that's, it's, it's fascinating to hear a version of my own. We were desperate, really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that does explain it. That does explain it. If there had been a glut of candidates, obviously, uh, things might have turned out differently. Well, but but, but, but actually, though, I mean, it, it part of the appeal for Chris was his youth and, and then the, the numismatic experience and interest. Uh, that is something that you bring to the table as well. Uh, and that's certainly a lot of people in the industry bemoan the fact of the lack of younger folks. Uh, mm-hmm. and, the, the hob, and think that the hobby doesn't market itself well. Is that right? How do we push back against that or change that? What's been your experience? I think that there are more young people in the hobby than, for example, shows reflect. There's a whole like community on Instagram of like high school-ish aged collectors for the most part. And then some like older dealers as well. But there's a whole community there of people who you're not going to see at a show you know, because they're still in school. They're not going to fly across the country to go to the ANA. Like, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So I do think that there are more young people than things like shows reflect. But I do definitely still think, you know, it's something that we should aim to kind of target more and try to get more young collectors in the door. And part of numismatic marketing's kind of mission statement is trying to find different ways to do that. We don't have the answer. I don't think anyone has the answer. But I do think it's good that kind of as a hobby, we seem to be realizing that like it's something that we need to focus on and we need to find some new ways to do things to try and bring more people in. And I think that video is a helpful medium to do that because nowadays, you know, a lot of younger people spend time just surfing YouTube. And so getting like shorter, informative, interesting videos up there is good. And there are a lot of other people putting video content out as well. So I think that's a very positive sign that the industry is moving in the right direction to help, you know, attract more younger people. I completely agree with you on the YouTube front and that, you know, relatively short informative videos are a path to garner a broader audience. You know, and some of the stuff you've produced uh, reflect things that Jeff and I have talked about quite a bit and that I've done in my own sort of corner of the hobby have tried to promote a little bit of, you know, coin collecting under uh, $50, you know, a number Mm -hmm. of you know, rare collectible coins you can purchase at a certain dollar amount that might be more accessible to a broader variety of people. I totally agree that that's, that that's valuable. You mentioned uh, when you were telling your story about how you sort of entered numismatics, you mentioned World Coins and Lincoln Sense, which are two <laughs> uh, ser- areas to collector series that a lot of people uh, that probably resonate with a lot of people. Um, what do you collect now? <laughs> uh, my main endeavor is Japanese bar money, which a lot of people have not heard of. Uh, They are rectangular coins produced in Japan from 1599 through 1869. They're a very obscure series, and I love them. (laughs) 
and they're silver and gold. And I've yes. I've seen you even buying some of them in some Facebook groups. Uh, mm-hmm. Quite fun. They're a fun little area, and um, it just it breaks the boundary so much of what we think of what a <laughs> coin is. Uh-huh. And it's a cool area, and mm-hmm. and you probably have um, very little competition. There's also a fairly low supply. Um, but there are probably only a few people who are actively buying like the more expensive ones, at least that I've kind of encountered. But they're very interesting. The They're difficult to research, which I think was kind of part of the appeal for me because I like a challenge. So some of them finding even like basic information is ridiculously difficult. Like there's one that every example that I've seen has what looks like a counter stamp on one side or the other. And nothing mentions that being there, like if it's official or if it is a secondary counter stamp. Nothing mentions it. There is no guide telling me if that is an official mark or not, but I cannot find an example that doesn't have it. It makes no sense to me. But it's a very interesting field, and there's a lot of research to be done. So I've had a lot of fun trying to figure out the little mysteries. That's awesome. So outside of of bar money, which of course would be probably the thing you find the most rewarding to write about, Mm -hmm. what are some other numismatic topics that you found really rewarding to dive into and to research and to, to cover in across all the different platforms on which you've worked. One of my favorite articles that I've written was about the effects on coinage of World War II. And I really enjoyed that one because, you know, it is, it's very much telling the story of history through coins and it's very much putting them in context. Because if you look at, if you just look at one country and you see, oh, they changed the composition during World War II. Okay, that's one thing. But then if you look at it at a broader scale and you're like, oh, these 10 countries change composition within two years of each other, then it it puts it in context more. And I really enjoy those that combine the history and the coins and put them together in a new way. I haven't run across another article that had the same the same examples pulled out to kind of reflect each other. And so I had a lot of fun with that. And then I also I really like writing about obscure things that are hard to find on the internet because then I feel like I'm more contributing something. Um, I wrote an article on Indian punch mark coins because there weren't any articles on them on the internet. Like I had to rent a book from the ANA to learn anything about them. So I enjoy writing those articles because it feels like I'm contributing something new that's not freely accessible anywhere. And so by taking the time to rent the book and sift through it for the basic information, it makes it a little bit easier for other people to kind of put their foot in the door on that subject. So those are the ones that I find the most rewarding. And I would say one of the things that stands out from your body of work is the breaking news that you've been able to report. (laughs) You (laughs) care to talk about the breaking news here from, we are uh, recording on April 20th during National Coin Week. It was 19 days ago that the big news dropped. (laughs) Oh yes, it was a very dramatic news story. (laughs) There was a wooden leg found inside the old Newman house that contained some old coins. Uh, including what appear to be a couple 1913 Liberty Nickels. No one's sure. One of them looks like it's copper. It's very intriguing. Very intriguing. And of course, <laughs> the the news on that broke on the 1st of April. We look forward to maybe an update, uh, and we'll link this in the show notes, uh, the original report, but we look for an update on that story maybe in 2021? Uh, it, it could happen. I don't know. We'll just, We'll have to see how it plays out. <laughs> it can become a yearly ritual. I, I think it'd be great, you know, to follow the saga over the next few years. I, I think that would be quite exciting. Maybe shake the wooden leg every year, see if something new comes out. That's it. That sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that's great. It. 
from a podcast standpoint, obviously we, we've spoken to a few numismatic podcasters on, on this show. And we're always curious to hear how different people structure their shows and how they research them and the, the sort of niche that each show fits into. You host the Numismatic Bibliomania Society's quarterly podcast. Yes. And I think Jeff and I are at least a little bit envious of, you know, you having a little bit of time to prepare. <laughs> Jeff and I are occasionally scrambling <laughs> to produce a weekly show. As you can tell, we're now we're not exactly. No, no, we do prepare, but certainly. <laughs> no, no, no. But certainly but we, doing we, this we every certainly, week is... We're somewhat envious of that. So <laughs> I'm curious. So do you find that having a little bit more time, do you find that you're able to be a little bit more deliberate? And what are some of the topics relating to numismatic literature that you hope to really dive in on? And how does the podcast format help you to do that? This is the only podcast that I've produced at this point. So I don't really have a baseline as far as the amount of time that I have to prepare. Um, right. The Newman Numismatic Portal or the Numismatic Bibliomania Society usually recommends guests and I don't always have those recommendations until, like, say, the month of when we're trying to get the episode released. So it's not like I have all three months to research knowing who sure. the guest is going to be because what we talk about is going to depend on what their expertise is. But it definitely is nice having that lead time. And then I have more time once it's been recorded to edit it together, which is nice. <laughs> we're still working on finding some better recording solutions. So it takes a little bit longer to edit together than it could. But we're working on it. As far as topics to talk about going forward, it overall, my goal with it is just to kind of get a very comprehensive view of numismatic bibliomania because I, I am not a book collector. I'm coming very much from the numismatic side. So the goal with the podcast overall, from my standpoint, is to try and help other numismatists understand the appeal of collecting coin books and maybe get a few more people interested in that sector of the hobby. So really any areas of it that we can bring in and different things that we can talk about, I'm happy to add to the discussion because it's going to make it make a little bit more sense. So I think it's hard for people who are so used to the world of coins to look at books the same way because they're such different mediums and they're very different markets. And so it's just anything that we can do to make that clearer in a format that's going to appeal more to a younger audience than say a bunch of articles because a lot of younger people listen to a lot more podcasts than they do reading articles online. So I think it's just trying to get that information into a format that's going to appeal to a younger audience and making it as comprehensive as we can. If only there could be a numismatic bibliomania true crime podcast and you'd have a, <laughs> uh, you'd have a recipe for success with the, with the younger folks, right? <laughs> the younger folks. Sorry, I, I'll check out now. That, that, that's not me. <laughs> nah, no, nah, no. Nah, come on. When I was your boy... <laughs> <laughs> I walked uphill both ways to turn in my wheat sense. As a collector, uh, both of numismatics and books, uh, there's nothing better than the intersection of those two things, numismatic books. And I, I am in the middle of reorganizing mine, integrating some new purchases, making room for some oh, I, need, I know I need this book for this series. Let me make some room on the shelf and re getting things reorganized. So, and, and I'm very much the, uh, the low-end side of things. I have an accumulation, uh, nothing fantastic, but uh, I certainly can appreciate and share that zeal for the numismatic book because what I have learned from the hobby has been by reading and talking to people. And right now I can't go to a show and talk to people, but mm -hmm. I can... 
I can read. So uh, it's it's great that and we're we've talked about some books and we're going to talk about some more books on the podcast. But, you know, what do we read? What's informing our coverage? That sort of thing. There is no loss to the time spent reading numismatic literature because you can always walk away with something that can inform your hobby and just make it easier and more enjoyable and maybe even more profitable. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Are there any numismatic titles that you have found either particularly engaging or you would recommend to someone who's just starting out? Red Book comes to mind, but are there any other titles that you feel really help to introduce either a certain segment of the hobby or the hobby itself? Oh man, this is a question that I ask guests on the on the NBS podcast. And I've never <laughs> stopped to contemplate my own own suggestion. <laughs> um this is gonna be a little bit of a roundabout answer. I always advocate collecting a typeset as a good way to get into the hobby because you see what all is out there, at least within US numismatics, and can see kind of what you want to focus on going from there. And it's very adjustable based on your price range. So I would err towards pretty much any kind of book that's going to be aimed towards a typeset. Like I know the Whitman, the Dave Bauer series has one that's about type collecting. I think that's the only one that I know offhand, but something like that, that's going to give you a very good kind of overview of American numismatics while also giving practical advice for putting together a collection. I can give you the top references for Japanese bar money offhand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, I mean, you know, that, that would be, you know, tremendously interesting to read. And I imagine that any of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the Japanese bar money uh, and who wanted to get uh, involved could could acquaint themselves. I absolutely agree with you on the uh, typeset front. That was how I sort of started collecting. And now I have a lot of really worn barber coinage as a result. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm going to do with all that, but I have it. Jeff and I have thought about, you know, how to make the hobby and bibliomania side of the hobby would be an interesting extension of this discussion how to sort of take terms and concepts that aren't immediately intuitive for people that a lot of numismatists kind of understand and can apply almost subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Have you found that the podcast or your writing for Coin Week or any other organization or publication, have you found an, a balance between the sort of jargon-heavy numismatic books and terminology and writing and a more accessible version of that that uh, sort of an every collector or someone who's not in the hobby might be able to enjoy? I very much try to. Actually, I wrote a series of blog posts for the ANA, um, and I don't know if this one is up yet, um, but there was one that was like defining some common words. And so I picked out a few that I knew would be good to define and then just put together a list of some others that I wasn't entirely sure if like a non-collector would know, and then just sent them to some friends who have absolutely nothing to do with numismatics and said, hey, which ones do you not know how to define? And then use that to base which one should be included in the article. But I very much aim to try to stay away from the really heavy jargon. Uh, it does help that, like, you know, writing for Coin Week, it's for a numismatic platform. So you can assume that anyone who's reading the article is going to know what obverse means. So, you know, you can use that level of jargon. It's just going, trying to avoid going too deep. And that is something that I pay a lot of attention to when um, writing articles that are kind of like the introductory, like I mentioned, the Indian punch mark coins and that type of thing is really trying to make it accessible to your average collector who like knows their wheat pennies and their buffalo nickels and maybe that's it. So just trying to avoid using any words that are going to be super specific to that series and aren't going to make sense right off the bat. Because the goal is to get them get their foot in the door and get to see the very basics of it. And if you hit them with jargon, that's not going to help anything. 
that's one of the problems I run into when reading books for that kind of situation is like all of a sudden there are all these terms and referring to all of these things that I just don't know what they are. One of the videos that I have made that has, I think, the most views on my channel of any like produced video was Ancient Coins 101. And it's the least fancy video on my channel. Recommend the other ones. But the whole point of that one was to define the jargon. Because when I started collecting, briefly got into ancient coins. I'm not doing a whole lot with them now, but I do still think they're very interesting and they're something I pay attention to. But when I first started getting into them, I could not find a definition for standard to save my life. They would have descriptions of the reverse and it's like two soldiers with a standard. I'm like, what on God's green earth is a standard? <laughs> standard bearer. But no, I, I, I love that because you speak to the importance of the information is what matters, not all the graphics and the glitz and the absolutely can see that ancient coins pose problems for many folks because of the, you know, the many things I've asked uh, auction houses, Hey, you know, you don't give a size for some of this and anymore people can look at a, a lot online. They printed it hundred percent in the catalog. Great. But for online, if you don't give a size, how is somebody who's new to the hobby going to know and understand what we're working with as far as size. So that's, that's one of those levels of jargon that most people just gloss right over. I love it. Mm -hmm. So shameless plug, what's the name of your channel? My personal channel is just my name. It's Leanna Spurrier. Um, if you Google me, it will come up. If you search it on YouTube, Perfect. it will come up. It's pretty easy Perfect. to find as long as you know how to spell my name. <laughs> L-I-A-N-N-A-S-P-U-R-R-I-E-R. There we go. We also have Perfect. a channel for numismatic marketing. There's not a whole lot on it yet because we haven't done a lot of projects that have been through numismatic marketing as opposed to things that I've done before joining that team. But it's also out there. It's just numismatic marketing. You mentioned numismatic marketing and that your current role there is creative director. Could you give us a little bit of numismatic marketing's history and could you describe your role within the organization? So our like kind of public launch as a company was at FUN this year in January before all of the shows got canceled. Um, and I am the creative director and I'm one of the owners. So I'm very much the head of like the day-to-day -day operations and like actually overseeing projects and working on client work and things like that. We do video production. We made an overview of the FUN show that was a lot of fun to work on. And we're working on a few other video projects that should be going out fairly soon. We do graphic design, so like ad design and placement or full-on branding. Um, we did the branding for Ron Guth's um, Numismatic Detective Agency. That one was, I was really happy with how that one turned out. It was a fun project. We can do like copywriting. So like if you just don't want to write descriptions for your auction catalog, we can do that. As well as design the catalog or books or whatever it is. Um, it's very much if it's related to media, we can do it. And if you do contact Numismatic Marketing, chances are that you'll be put directly in contact with me to kind of organize the project and figure out what we're doing. I'm the main like communicator. So yes, I'm very hands-on with most of the projects that we do. And it's been a lot of fun working with them and getting to work with some new clients that I hadn't run into freelancing on my own. Like Witter is one of them that we've gotten to work with a lot and that's been a good time. So it's been a really good fit for my skills and what I'm trying to contribute to the hobby. It's been a very good, very good fit. Well, starting out with an overview of the fun show, that's that's a fairly high profile event. And so I <laughs> imagine that that was very good for getting the name for numismatic marketing out there. What do you anticipate being one of the, or among 
the most common requests you're going to get? Or what kinds of clients do you foresee doing a lot of work with? And what kind of content do you think that they'll be needing? Based on what we've seen so far, I would give a pretty solid guess that the two most common types of work are going to be videos and ad design. Any numismatic company that does any kind of print advertising, we offer them a way to get it off of their plate so then they don't have to worry about it. And so I think that's going to be a very valuable service that we can provide, as well as increasing the quality of some ads and making them a little bit more eye-catching and helping them stand out. So I feel like that one's probably going to be one of our main services. And already we've gotten a lot of inquiries about video production, just because there aren't a lot of people in the field doing video production at a high quality level, like going to a show and making a pretty organized overview, interviewing different dealers and doing that type of thing. So that's kind of a unique take on coin videos that we're offering. So those are the two that I foresee being our kind of main main projects. I would love to do a lot of book design. I personally really enjoy doing book design and that is something that we offer, uh, but I just don't, there's probably not as many people who need a book designed as there are who need an ad designed or who want to do a video of something. So, And you did just do a, a book design uh, for the Jewish American Hall of Fame medals? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we had a story about that. I uh, look forward to getting a copy of that that will go in my medals section in my library. So how is the uh, current situation? I mean, it's difficult for everybody, dealers and, and all that, no, no shows to go to. That sort of limits what kind of projects can be done, but also allows you maybe to focus energies on things that can be done at any time. I don't know. Yeah, um, the only... The only real impact that it has had on us is for shows. We were planning to go to the Baltimore show last month, which obviously didn't happen. And I think we are going to try to go to Central States this month. Oops. But yeah. like we're all we're set up to work from home anyway. So anything that didn't require travel, it's pretty much business as usual. Like this is we were ready for this, essentially, like we're used to working from home. So on that aspect, it hasn't been that much of a problem. We're still at full capacity. We're good. It has let us focus on some other things, not being able to go to those shows, because usually probably about the week after a show is very hectic trying to get everything together that we worked on at the show and like edit any overview videos together and contact people that we met at the show and all of that. So it has it's been a calm little while in terms of that because we haven't had the shows. So we've been able to focus a little bit more on other projects so that part has been nice, but it hasn't it hasn't been too disruptive, which I think we're all very grateful for. I know I'm very, very lucky to have not been impacted too much by it yet. Hopefully that sort of relative lack of impact will continue. I have one last question for you, and it, it might be one you've answered before, so I apologize if it's a little bit derivative. <laughs> but what advice would you give to a young person or someone who is inexperienced, who's trying to approach numismatics, numismatic bibliomania, some element of the industry, but isn't quite sure how to get started, you know, is interested in learning more, but might be a little bit daunted by all the complex terms, all of the different characters and players. What advice would you give to someone starting out? In a normal time, I think I would say find a local coin shop, talk to the dealer, and ideally, it's a good dealer who will like, you know, help educate you and help you understand how it works. Currently, that's not so much of an option. So um, in the current situation, I think my advice would just be trying to find outlets that are from clearly numismatic sources. So like, so it's from Coin Week or Coin World or, you know, something that's obviously focused on coins. It's not an article on 
MSN about the, the top 10 most valuable, but that's, that's probably nothing you want to read. Look at the coin media and try to find articles that seem targeted for beginners or, you know, look at podcasts, videos, and branch out to other media as well. If you just start listening to a podcast and, you know, embrace that you're not going to know everything that they're talking about up front, you're going to learn a lot along the way either way. And, you know, if words come up that you don't understand, Google's your friend. And Newman Numismatic Portal has a very large dictionary of numismatic terms, so that could be really helpful. You just got to kind of dig in. I don't know of any specific, like, here's how you start places to go. So you just kind of got to realize that it's going to be difficult for a minute. But once once you get into that area, suddenly it makes starts making a lot of sense. And I do have some videos that are, you know, targeted towards more beginners. I have one friend who has nothing to do with coins who enjoyed the collecting under $50 video. So shameless self-plug. Some of my videos are good for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of my friends, I tried to introduce them to the podcast and some of them listened and were like, I don't know what you're talking about. Could you, you know, try to explain things a little bit more clearly. So having that feedback from the quote unquote outside world, right, mm-hmm. can can be really helpful for that. But oh, yeah. you mentioned one thing that I just want to quickly follow up on because it's it's a little bit of a hobby horse of mine. You mentioned how you might, how uh, someone trying to approach numismatics might not want to read an article posted on MSN or some, I, I hesitate to use the word mainstream media because it's such a freighted term these days. But, you know, you don't necessarily want to read a story from a major national news organization about coins because they frequently either get it wrong or they play up the most sensationalistic details of that. As someone who produces coin media, do you sort of also see the failures of major news outlets to sort of grapple with the numismatic reality of some of the stories that they report on when coins come up? Oh, yeah. I, I think it, it is important to have those stories about coins in the mainstream media, it's a good way to kind of put it in front of people and get it in their face. It just shouldn't be like a main research avenue. Uh, I know back at last year's World's Fair of Money, the 1894S dime sold for a little over a million dollars and there were news stories about it. None of them that I saw from the mainstream media really explained why it would sell for over a million dollars. It was more in the vein of, oh my God, someone spent over a million dollars for a dime. These people yeah. are crazy. It wasn't It wasn't knocking about how rare it was or why it was interesting or why someone would spend that much on it. And so I think there's a lot of a disconnect there in terms of understanding why people collect and are willing to spend that amount of money on a coin and saying, oh, wow, we should write about that because it was a lot of money. There, there's a disconnect. So they're valuable and that they get it in front of people. And I think it's always good. Anything that we can do to get the hobby in the mainstream news, it just shouldn't be the main source of information for anyone who's interested in collecting. Amen, sister. There's a clear emphasis on market value as opposed to historical importance. Oh, yeah. And trying to change that would be, I think, an important endeavor that might attract people to the hobbies. So I agree with all the the comments you made there as well. Yeah, I always try to focus more on the historical value of a piece than the market value. I am not a market analyst. I have never made any claims to be a market analyst. But I love the stories behind the coins. And so that's kind of where... I try to focus my attention and I'm always a lot more excited about that kind of project. It's important to, you know, share the market value of them as well. And I'll happily do anything related to numismatics, but I'll personally get more invested in those stories about the history behind the pieces, because that's what I find fascinating about the hobby. And that's what we find fascinating about the hobby. And that's why we are delighted to have been able to bend your ear for a few minutes and and talk to you today. 
We look forward to viewing and reading more of your stories and doing work on our own stories. And hopefully sometime this year, there'll be another show and we will be able to meet and commune and just share the love of the hobby with everyone. Yes. If the ANA happens, we're planning to be there. Awesome. <laughs> As are we. So we'll, yeah. uh, ho- hopefully we'll have a chance to talk further then. But in, in the meantime, Liana, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. It's been a great time. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Leanna Spurrier. We had a great time talking to her about her experience in the numismatic industry and some of the projects that numismatic marketing is going to be taking on in the foreseeable future. I also just got a real kick out of talking to her because as you heard in the interview, her professional numismatic journey and my own have a lot in common. So I certainly appreciate being able to talk to someone who has had a lot of the same or at least similar experiences uh, in the industry. So if you are still listening uh, here, this we are something like an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes in. Thank you for being here. We hope that you're subscribing. Uh, We hope that you're sharing this with all your friends and even some of your enemies. We love to do this and we look forward to hearing from you and communicating with you every week down the line. We hope that all of our listeners are staying safe and staying healthy. So until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Hey everyone, it's Brian again, reminding you to check out our free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. The offer expires on May 31st, 2020, so head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial or follow the link in the show notes today.